0: Welcome to the MindBeat Podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director, Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health. From sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation, MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the MindBeat podcast. I am Duncan Young. I'm the CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: We have got another fantastic MindBeat episode for you today. Uh, We're going to be introducing in just a couple of minutes our guest for today, uh, John Crocker, who is the Director of School Mental Health and Behavioral Services in the Methuen School District in... um, the state uh the great state of uh, Massachusetts we're really excited to have uh John uh with us lane how you doing
1: I'm pretty good duncan how about you good
0: Good. Yeah. Lane, so Lane and I were just talking. We're uh, in our little podcast setup here, and there's a giant digital clock uh, in front of us, uh, which, for reasons we don't really understand, actually has the the temperature kind of on here as well. I don't know if this is like in the podcasting world, if you get above a certain picture uh, temperature, like your headset melts or something like that. But uh, I, don't, I don't know what the the <laughs> reason for that profusely. is. But <laughs> but it is it is 71 degrees in here, and Lane said, "Well, that's room temperature." And I said, "Is it room temperature?" So so Lane, what is room temperature to you? Well, like,
1: uh, I have to tell you. I was, I was recently traveling and in my hotel room, I could not figure out what is the appropriate temperature. We started off on 68, it was already the setting when I got there and I felt cold. So I put it up to like 71 and then I started sweating. So I couldn't figure out what it was. I had to open the door. <laughs> I, to, I, I can't quite figure it out. I remember when I was in a school setting, we actually had, uh, I was in an older building where we had individual uh, temperature settings in our room. And it was a constantly a battle between like teachers and students over what is the right room temperature. So uh, I think our school nurse used to stay like right at 70. So I guess it depends on how big the room is, ventilation, that kind of thing. But I, I tend to be a little colder. I, I, you know, I do. I am a little colder. <laughs> I feel
0: like this is one of the great wedge issues in relationships, right? <laughs> yes. So this is a, with with my wife and I. This is a in constant yeah. constant like conversation where... Like room temperature to me, I'm very cold natured. So, mm-hmm. uh, 72. I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. good 72 person. <laughs> She's 68. You don't you don't think yeah. that 68 versus 72 is a big deal? Yeah. It's a big deal. I mean, it is four, a big deal. four degrees.
1: That's a hoodie in the house. It is. I for don't sure. want to wear a hoodie in the house. And then you throw you throw <laughs> you the know? kids, and they're
0: different. Like you know, kind of thermodynamic properties kind of into mm-hmm. the mix, and it can be little bit of a challenge to, uh, to manage it all. So yeah, uh, yeah.
1: I want to still be like, you know, in regular clothes in the house, you know, <laughs> my dad, when I was a kid, I used to like have hardly any clothes on and go, I'm cold. And he was like, if you put some clothes on, you'd feel better. I'm like, no, I just want the temperature just to be nice and be pleasant. Right. So I don't know. I'm not really sure exactly what it is, but, uh, I'm gonna guess it's right around 70 for me. But
0: are you the kind of person that in like January you wanna be wearing like shorts like around your house or you in the
1: house? Yeah, yeah, I do. Huh. That's really why I think the East Coast, I'm gonna have to figure out how to be a snowbird because uh I don't like wearing hoodies and all that. My son is a real hoodie kid, loves to wear hoodies, loves the fall, and he can he has a plethora of hoodies to choose from. I'm a sundress kind of girl. I'm I like to, you know you know, not have a lot of being encumbered right. by clothes. I don't like layers. So I just need to be somewhere where it's naturally warm, where I don't have to wear a bunch of clothes. Got it. Got
0: yeah. it. And that naturally warm place <laughs> is like your 85 degree house in exactly. the middle of, just, middle of January, right? So good good.
1: To, 85 good might be yeah. too hot. 85 outside got is it. pleasant. I was actually, I was in a, a lift coming back from the airport recently and uh, we were having a whole temperature thing in the car too. And I was like, you know, in the summertime, though, I like it hot. Like, I like 95-degree days. And the driver was like, oh, no, that's not going to work for me. I'm like, I I don't know. I'm weird. I I like it like that. I like really hot summers. I
0: used to live in the Central Valley (laughs) of California where the normal summer temperature in, like, July would get up to, like, 110 degrees. Mm. So, anytime you can, like, fry an egg on the hood (laughs) of your car... That's hot. That's bad. I and mean, people talk about they're like, oh, it's a dry heat. Yeah. I'm like, No, dry heat, not dry heat. One hundred and ten is one hundred and ten, right?
1: I was going right? to so, say the humidity thing is a big deal on the East Coast. I can't, even though I've been to the West Coast, I feel like I've never been there during like the heat of the summer. So I still don't have a reference for that dry heat that they talk about. Sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, jump right into uh, our our uh, agenda for today. We're going to get started with our top three list, as we do every episode. We're uh, going to share three big ideas in response to a key mental health-related question. (music) Elaine, you're going to take us through our top three today. This is top three techniques for de-escalating students. I know something that you advise districts on quite a bit. Uh, Take it away. Share with us your, your top three.
1: Oh yeah. Kids in many districts (laughs) call me the reset lady. So this is a a topic that I definitely love. Uh, So my three, my top three techniques, The first one is stay calm. A lot of times if you have an escalated person in front of you, it can trigger our own stress response, right? And then we can add to the chaos rather than share our calm. So remain calm, reset yourself if need be, so that you can be a support for this person then I think a really great, uh, strategy is to do what we call active recognitions. So just validate the emotions of the person without validating the behavior, right? So that you can say, Hey, I can see you're having some really strong feelings right now. And just the acknowledgement that that person's having a hard time can automatically be a deescalator that they now feel seen. They feel heard, you know, yeah, I am having a hard time. and And then, then you want to, you know, once you get to that place now where they're starting to, uh, you know, be able to discuss their feelings, maybe you want to offer a, a reset a reset strategy or a calming strategy, a grounding activity, breath work, take a walk, um, you know, do you need a hug? Whatever it may be uh, for that person, uh, a moment of gratitude. There's so many things that we can do. But offer some type of reset strategy. Now, in a school setting, you may want to have a a pre-teaching session with kids, you know, to kind of figure out what's the best strategy for that person, so that in tough times you can go right to the things that you know work for that particular student. So that'd be my top three: be kind, be respectful, even when that person's not being respectful to you, and like sharing your your calm, not your chaos. Give that active recognition, and then offer some type of reset or calming strategy as a review. There,
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. I think really, really thinking through the things that, as uh, you know, educators, what is within our control to handle some of those challenging kind of conversations that that come up. So, uh, I think those oh, are yeah. fantastic. Thanks for sharing those. Thank you. Okay, uh, so our our next segment is our in the news segment. So Lane and I have uh, carefully curated two uh, articles that really kind of captured our interest today. Uh, as, as I think anybody would, would be able to notice right now, when you go out and you really can't look at a website or look at a newspaper without reading something about school-based mental health, more so than you know, at any time I can remember, this is really part of the public consciousness right now. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and get started. The first article that I'm looking at is from the Boston Globe, uh, it is entitled, Teens and young adults are self diagnosing mental illness on TikTok. What could go wrong? Um, mm. And clearly, I think there's some challenges here. Um, you know, uh, as with all of our articles, we're going to post these on our social media feed uh, 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 Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. You can also find uh, links to these on the Effective School Solutions website, www.effectiveschoolsolutions.com. But some of the key uh, points from this article, uh, it's really talking about that TikTok has turned into a hot source of mental health info for teens and young adults. And I think if there's a positive spin on that, it's that I think this probably, you know, contributes to destigmatization. It can take students who might be feeling uh, isolated uh, with a mental health challenge they might be dealing with, and uh, uh, it gives them kind of a community and then lets them know that they are are not alone. But some of the, not so great aspects that the article kind of really points out is the fact that experts are worried that vulnerable people with real mental illness are being led down sometimes destructive paths and that many many uh, who aren't ill are being seduced into thinking that they that they are. So specifically kind of suggestible people mistake having one or two symptoms with having the disorder itself. Uh, this reference is a study from, uh, Corey Bash, who's a professor of public health at William Patterson university. And this really blew me away lane. She Mm -hmm. looked at a study that looked at 100 TikTok videos that had the hashtag mental health hashtag. And, uh, those videos collectively had over a billion, a billion views, B Mm -hmm. not a, not a, not an M. And then all of the videos also had like really high levels of, uh, uh, comments. So uh, really high volume, really high intensity comments, and and I'm not going to go through the whole article. But when they went into the comments, there was some really uh, kind of sketchy kind of ad- advice there. So mm. you know, I I think as with many things in in life, this is kind of a nuanced conversation. Are there some benefits to having resources available via social media to? Destigmatize and raise awareness of mental health. I, I think kind of the the answer to that is is yes, but there's also a a lot of you know potential unintended consequences with this. And you know I, I think this is probably a good chance for us to remind everyone that if you do think that you were struggling with a mental health challenge, it's important to go see kind of a, a a professional and not to rely on on kind of social media platforms like uh, like 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 TikTok. Mm. Anything you want to add to that, Lynn?
1: No, I mean uh, you you took my thought when I uh, I was thinking the same thing. At least it's helping to destigmatize because that's a huge problem in so many communities that you know mental health is looked at as a weakness and you know so at least if it's on and social media and these mass numbers like that then people are creating awareness around it it, it probably doesn't seem like such uh, an unusual thing to have mental health issues but yeah when you're getting really bad advice that could be very problematic very problematic so. I want to introduce an article that was by CNN Health. This study finds huge increase in children going to the emergency room with suicidal thoughts. So from 2015 to 2019, prescriptions for antidepressants (coughs) rose 38% for teenagers compared with 15% for adults. So this is rather disturbing. The uh, study published uh, in the Journal of Pediatrics, excuse me, Pediatrics, used data from hospitals in Illinois, and the researchers looked at the number of children ages 5 to 19 who sought help for suicide in emergency departments between uh, January of 2016 to June of 21. And in that period, there were over 80,000 emergency department visits by people who were coded for suicidal ideation. So about a quarter of those visits did turn into hospital stays. So then then the study found that visits to the ER and suicidal thoughts increased from 59% from 2016 to 17 to 2019 to 21. And then the the, uh, corresponding increase in cases in which suicide ideation was principal diagnosis rose from 34% to 44%. So this is uh, very alarming, but I can tell you that when I used to work with uh, pregnant parenting teen moms, we saw a lot of postpartum depression. And there were many occasions where we did have to bring uh, students to the hospital and it's it's a flawed system. I don't know what's happening currently today, but I know just you know as recently as a few years ago, we would take kids to the hospital. It's like a waiting game. You know, you're waiting in the emergency room all night. I mean, you could literally be there till the next morning, and then it's like you just kind of get sent home. So I don't know, you know, what support. Maybe it raises some alarms so that maybe there's some follow up care. But I don't really know what's happening in the emergency room or or what care is being offered. Um, so I'd like to see some more supports. And that area for kids who are, um, you know, feeling that way. I would just like to add that if you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or mental health matters, that you should call the suicide or crisis life, uh, lifeline. Um, or you can visit that website for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a staggering statistic. So yeah. let me just restate this to make sure I understand it. Yeah. Um, so the the visits to the er for students with suicidal thoughts increased by 59% from mm-hmm. really from the direct pre-pandemic period to kind of the during and after the pandemic period and that is yeah. incredibly concerning i think you know relative to kind of our main audience here of uh, school district professionals i think that obviously creates like a huge strain for uh, school districts i think uh, many districts that we talk to are um, you know, uh, kind of reassessing their crisis plans, making sure that they've got the right resources, both internal and external in place for for screening. And one of the things, Lane, I think we hear a lot about is, you know, not just having the right processes to make sure students with suicidal ideation are getting screened in the correct way, but it's also making sure that when those students come back into the school mm-hmm. environment, that there is a good mm-hmm. landing spot for them and that there's a good kind of like a you know set of, you know, wraparound services to help kind of retransition them back into the the school environment. I think that's another kind of huge gap that we continue to hear about as well.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Uh, you know, we all have to do our part to help remedy this. So, um, you know, I'm glad that these studies are coming out. I, you know, I think that it's still going to be a little while to be more removed from the pandemic before we really know how bad it is. Um, but, but yeah, this is very concerning.
0: Agree. Agree. Um, okay. Well, let's, uh, let's get into our, our guest for today. Who's been waiting patiently with us. So, uh, uh, John Crocker, Uh, Welcome, John. John is the Director of School Mental Health and Behavioral Services for the Methuen uh, Public School District in, uh, as I mentioned before, the the great state of uh, of Massachusetts. Uh, He has done so much in this role. He has overseen the planning and implementation of the district's mental health initiative, which is focused on the establishment of a comprehensive school mental health system in partnership with the National Center for School Mental Health. Uh, He also oversees the uh, district-wide implementation of uh, PBIS. He has been a real thought leader in the area of universal mental health screening and in advancing the use of psychosocial data to inform the the school uh, mental health staff's therapeutic uh, practice. Um, I, I will say from all of the districts that we work with, we really admire uh, what John is is doing kind mm-hmm. of in Methuen, and we really look at the system that he set up as a real exemplar and kind of a, a best practice for kind of what a great high-functioning school-based mental health continuum uh, looks like. Uh, m- very notably as well, uh, John has also founded the Massachusetts School uh, Mental Health Consortium. The acronym for that is the MASMHC. This is a group of approximately 170 school districts around Massachusetts committing to advocating for and implementing quality and sustainable school mental health services and supports. And I think when you think about this uh, big idea of establishing best practices and establishing uh, system-wide communities of learning for districts to learn, uh, from each other. Uh, not only has John done amazing things in his district, he has also been working at a at a systems level across the entire state to help get those communication flows going. So, uh, John, welcome to the MindBee Podcast. Welcome, John. So thankful to be here. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity. John I got to ask you were if i if folks are watching this on video they can look behind you and is that the album cover for the clashes London calling over your left shoulder shoulder it, it absolutely okay. is <laughs> John I, see I, I liked you before I like even more now I love it I love it so it's one of the phenomenal, great uh I mean. one of the great iconic album covers of all time right so
2: it definitely I, uh, definitely. I um no, I I, I there have only been a couple people who have called that out, so I appreciate the fact uh <laughs> that you're
0: I'm here for you, John. So yeah. love it, love I it. I take it you are a
2: Clash fan. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um such it. it's such an incredible band. I uh yeah, huge fan. Uh, huge fan of all of the music coming out of that era. So
0: yeah, um, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we, we have a whole done. we have a whole side conversation we can have about our kind of uh, you know, <laughs> late seventies, early eighties, punk and post punk kind of preferences and whatnot. But you know, there we, we go. go. I don't know. I don't know if that's. Uh, I don't know if that's why people tune into the My Beat podcast, John. But uh, we can probably that's a different podcast. Yeah. We so can take okay. that. We can take that offline. I'd, I'd like to do that podcast. That would be that would be fun. Maybe that would be a My Beat spinoff. It'll just be like it'll just be beat. You know, like a beat the the music. <laughs> spin spinoff of the, My Beat, uh, of the My Beat podcast. So, well, John, welcome. We're incredibly excited to have you here. Um, you know, maybe we could just start off talking a little bit about your background. We'd love to learn more about yeah. you, both in education, but also, uh, you know, also your your uh, entry into the mental health world and how do you kind of ri- arrive at the role that you're playing right now in uh, Methuen?
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. So, I mean, I've been, I've been working in public education for... while now about 15 ish years and i started um i started in a social emotional special education program really just assisting um, as a program assistant this was when i was in grad school and i loved working with a population of students that needed a higher level of support Um, i felt it was incredibly rewarding to be able to support them throughout their days and um you know, while I while I was in grad school, I also you know had the opportunity to to run actually elementary level uh, therapy groups. Uh, that was a very different experience. Uh, it really, kind of cut my teeth from a, a clinical standpoint um, with with both therapy groups and also um, doing doing work with students in kind of more natural environments like uh, therapeutic day camps and. Um, working with students increasingly in schools. Um, I started out as a school counselor after my uh, graduate work at Methuen High School, and I truly just fell in love with the work, um, jumped into it right away. Um, fast forward a couple of years, and I had an opportunity to serve as the administrator for that department at the high school. It was not something I was expecting to happen, uh, but I saw it as an opportunity to really Push forward the agenda of uh, our kids need a tremendous amount of, of help, and we should be organizing and structuring support such that we can get to the at the time about 2,000 kids at the high school. Um, so, you know, it became a passion project of mine to really just continue moving forward the therapeutic practice of not only not only my therapeutic practice, but those of the uh, around me and, and really trying to install a, a more comprehensive program that would uh, support every kid and uh, provide an opportunity for them to uh, find success. So, you know, landing in this role, it's been, um, I, I spent several years in that position and Kind of increasingly over time um the recognition of the need of our students grew the recognition of the need for our supports to need to extend to all buildings grew uh, to the point where i I ended up as the district-wide director and now i serve as the director of school mental health and behavioral service um, for the district uh, overseeing about Forty-ish clinical staff members, school counselors, school psychologists, adjustment counselors, social workers. Um, We're a district of about seven thousand, so it's a lot of kids spread across a bunch of buildings. And uh, Methuen is a gateway city; it's got gateway city kinds of needs going on. So it's um, it's definitely it's it's a complex set of needs that we are trying to address. But um, it's you know I'll go back to incredibly rewarding work and thankful to be able to um, to address the needs of kids in a way that. Is um, that, that provides an opportunity for them to find success beyond just the high school level.
0: So, John, could you could you if we, if we think about your continuum aligned to like a multi tiered systems of support framework, could you just describe maybe the different tiers of support and how you guys have set that up in the in the district?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think viewing a comprehensive school mental health system through the lens of MTSS is is definitely the right way to do it. Um, I think that CSMHS is a flavor of MTSS that works really well with all the other tiered systems of support that we see, whether that's an academic or behavioral continuum of support. So when I think of tier one in a comprehensive school mental health system, I'm thinking of what does every kid get? What is the universal service that all students get? So I think of things like social-emotional learning curriculum. I think about social-emotional learning instructional practice. So not not the curriculum, but the, the way in which we deliver content such that we're fostering SEL. I also think of things like mental health literacy. <coughs> and I, I guess I will, I'll, I'll throw in there universal screening which is really a data system and a method of identification for kids. But I'll call universal screening a Tier 1 intervention as well because we're reducing stigma in a really big way if we screen students, talk about mental health, give them opportunities to get help in the future. Tier 2, I'm looking at slightly more intense interventions. I think it's probably good to kind of like pause and say we don't label interventions based on grouping. It's not a tier three intervention because it happens to be for an individual kid. You can be with a kid for two minutes in a classroom, process, problem solve. That's not a tier three intervention. That's tier one. It's, it's the intensity that lands it in a tier. So it makes me think like dosage, frequency, duration. Yep, that's, yep, yep. that's how we would like kind of label an intervention and, and uh, how we would distinguish it between tiers of support. So, uh, you know, it happens to be the case that it's a group-based intervention at Tier 2 that I typically look at, but it's because of the intensity of the intervention. So group therapy, CBT groups, 8 to 10 weeks, 8 to 10 students, uh, maybe short-term individual counseling at Tier 2. And then we march all the way up to intensive individual counseling at Tier 3, programmatic services, maybe um, a, a support that is providing a program to Um, re-enter students into the school after psychiatric hospitalization. I think of the Bright model out of Brookline Center. Um, So these are the, you know, there's something there for everyone. Not every student needs therapeutic support, but every student needs help navigating their social environment, managing stress, managing strong emotions, building relationships. So that's that's what we offer across all the tiers of support. That's great. Thanks for describing that, John.
1: John, as a district leader and thought leader in this space, can you tell our audience what are the most pressing issues as it relates to student mental health?
2: I don't think it's going to be a surprise that I point to things like anxiety, depression, and, and trauma as the, the big mm-hmm. kind of uh, the, the, the things with the greatest prevalence right now. And that's not to say that students aren't grappling with other issues, but those, those to me feel like the things that... Kind of every district I talked to, they're saying, yeah, really struggling with anxiety, depression, and trauma right now. Substance use also in a very big way. Um, I think probably it's well. I, I guess I have to call out the fact that we had a, a mental health crisis before the pandemic. Mm. This wasn't something that just kind of happened. There's a lot more uh, people noticing it now. I think it's tough to to like ignore. I think it's tough to fail to recognize something that's on fire, because right now, I mean, it truly is the youth mental health crisis. Um, so like, it's the prevalence of these concerns that I think is overwhelming districts um, and not being able to dispatch you know, the, the current staffing to be able to assist with all of the needs that are just so uh, widespread across their student populations.
1: Hundred percent, John, I agree completely.
2: So John,
0: if we, when you, when you think about the last five years and, uh, uh, well, let's actually take it from when you began kind of in your, in your role, what, what are the main gaps that you identified in the structure and like, what were the top initial two or three things that you took on to try to really improve the the quality of the comprehensive school based mental health system that you had in place and with you in?
2: Yeah. I, you know, I work with a lot of districts and I kind of, I give them the playbook that I think makes sense for a district starting out trying to build a comprehensive school mental health system. And it it aligns well with what we tried to do in the beginning. You need a team. You need a a group of individuals that's going to be able to be dispatched to do all this stuff, to um, to try out new practices, to establish policy and procedure, to conduct a needs assessment, to really understand what do we have, what do we don't like? What do we need? What are the things that we're doing really well that we can capitalize on? And what are the kind of glaring gaps that we want to fill with new implementation? Those, to me, feel like really important first steps, ensuring that you've got your people and you've got your infrastructure well-defined and starting to build that up even more. But then I have to add to that the data systems and feedback loops. So screening was one of the first things that we took on. And we did not start with universal screening. I, I actually wouldn't recommend screening all of your kids all at once in one shot for the first time. Lean into that process, but test it on a small scale first and then scale up as you uh, become more familiar and comfortable with the practice. It doesn't mean it's going to take forever, but let's have that first test of change be a small one that you can control. Lastly, I'll, I'll point to things like um, professional development, staff readiness to be able to provide really quality services to kids in a school context. That doesn't happen Um Uh, by accident you have to plan your professional development out and have it match the needs of the staff that you have and then you need to coach them you need ongoing clinical supervision and evaluation so those feel like important first steps for a district and and certainly things that we established early on
0: so I think implementing anything like this in a school setting, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I think we've all read the data on implementation science. And a lot of times, you know, you know any organization implementing anything is often going to have that implementation dip after they get started with a new initiative. When you're working with districts and advising them, John, what are the most common kind of like uh, uh, pieces of an implementation dip? What are the most common kind of tripping points that the districts come up against? And uh, how do you advise them to kind of overcome those things?
2: Yeah, I I definitely see it. And I I appreciate the call out there because when, you know, I think it's an unfortunate byproduct of like spray and pray professional development where we, we have maybe a session on a certain topic and we say, go do the thing, but there's no follow through. There's no coaching. There's no fidelity check. So um, I I like to, I like to ensure that we have um, an opportunity for more consistent feedback, more consistent um, and two way communication around the implementation that we're using a continuous quality improvement approach to implementation so that we're not saying screen a 1000 kids tomorrow, let's see how it goes. Instead, we're saying let's screen one kid, one measure, one day, unpack that, see what we like, see what we don't like. How can we scale up to five kids? That sounds good. Let's try that out. 5, 10, 15, 20, maybe a classroom grade level school. So it's we're monitoring implementation over time in a way that allows for us to reflect on and adapt our practice. And that, to me, uh, somewhat guards against this idea of a dip in implementation fidelity uh, because we're constantly checking to make sure we're doing the thing. And um, I, I also think just ensuring that we are providing opportunities for, for coaching and supervision around the practice. Um, unfortunately, I think it's the reality that clinical supervision and clinical leadership in districts is woefully lacking. Um, we surveyed our districts in Massachusetts. We had about um, over 100 districts respond to a question. One question that was, do you currently employ a staff member who provides clinical supervision and clinical leadership around school mental health implementation. And about 70 percent of districts said no. Um, So one of the guards against implementation dip or or kind of lack of fidelity is, do we have a leader in place that's checking these things? Is there an accountability process in place or are we just saying, I hope this goes well after PD? good
0: luck. Yeah, John, I think I think that's a, a a little bit of an unfortunate byproduct of even some of the ESSER funding that's out there. I think one of the things we've all noticed is that, you know, districts are getting ESSER funding, a lot of times it's being used to hire, you know, let's hire 20 clinicians, but I think there's that then fundamental question of who's supervising those individuals, who's leading them, who's got the right skill set kind of for that. And so that's one thing I think we're always trying to advise districts on. And it sounds like you are in Massachusetts as well as it's not just about the on the ground clinicians. It's also about the supporting infrastructure to enable them to do their job to service students effectively.
2: A hundred percent. If you're misusing 10 staff members, adding another 10 isn't going to make it better. So you know that's that's a a piece that i think is really important to remember and i want to give a lot of credit to individuals who are currently trying to provide supervision and evaluation to clinical staff who maybe have no background in in doing so you know i think of an associate principal who if you know is asked to supervise a bunch of counselors and i'm sure they're doing their best and you know i i think it's a it's a an unfortunate ask to begin with, I would probably be a terrible supervisor of the science department at the high school. Uh, Despite my affinity for science, I don't have the pedagogical skill to move practice with those teachers. And in the same way, I don't know that uh, an associate principal with no counseling background can move practice with counselors. So it it becomes a a situation where um, it's not just, to your point, getting more staff, it's how are we dispatching staff Are we supervising them? Are we resourcing them? Are we giving them good PD and feedback so that we can move their practice? Um, Unfortunately, I think the investment in just more people doesn't cut it. it. It needs to be, and again, to your point, that infrastructure around them that allows for them to be leveraged appropriately. That's great. Great point.
1: As the uh, senior director of professional learning, I definitely echo and co-sign on your comments about implementation. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I was a former teacher and I would have some amazing presentations I would attend. And we call those here random acts of PD here, right? So you go to this random <laughs> act of PD and it can be so impressive and really get you all excited. And then you get back to your classroom. And the moment you are tasked with a challenging behavior, you often <laughs> default right back to your old settings without that supportive implementation. and. Uh, your enthusiasm quickly begins to wane. And so I definitely appreciate that. uh, Those comments, because coaching is so important to us here, that ongoing coaching and feedback, supervision, um, observations, all of that is so, so important.
0: And I think one of the great watch outs that I'm also hearing from you, it's random acts of PD, but I would say it's random acts random acts of blank, right? I mm-hmm. think any any random act thinking in any organization, I think a school or otherwise can be can be challenging. Cause I, I think we can have random acts of PD, but I think what you're describing, John, is kind of random acts of therapy, right? Yeah. And so how right. do we make sure that that we are, you know, taking we don't we don't want to have uh clinical services that while well-intentioned are not, are not, you know, getting their full benefit for students because we don't have the right support and the right structure within which kind of they're, they're operating.
2: Right. I mean, it's, if we leave people to their own devices, um, without any kind of support, they're going to do their best. Um, but unfortunately we know that, you know, professional staff need that are owed that support are owed that feedback so that we can improve practice. Um, I, I, think it just, it lends itself to better outcomes for kids and for staff.
0: Yeah, John let's shift gears and talk a little bit about the uh, consortium, the Massachusetts school-based mental health consortium of which you are the, the founder. Could you maybe talk to us about like, how did that come about? What's the origin story of the consortium and what are you guys working on right now?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this really came out of, uh, recognition of the needs around us. But it it predates that in that we were part of a uh, a learning I'll call it a learning collaborative. Uh, It was a collaborative for improvement innovation network for uh, comprehensive school mental health. It was um, out of the National Center for School Mental Health National Quality Initiative. So we were one of 12 districts selected nationally to really try to establish a comprehensive school mental health system. They gave us lots of technical assistance and support and PD and resources. And we felt like we had the creative license to really do the work and to, to try to get things off the ground. And early on, like I said, we, we got, we got screening off the ground. We had PD around evidence-based therapeutic practices, great teaming needs assessment, resource mapping. So we were moving, we felt good, but you know, fast forward a few years and we recognize that the districts around us, we're still grappling with like, how do we do this? We care about this topic, but we really, we, we want to tap into some support around how do we make this happen? So the impetus to, to really start this came out of a recognition that, you know, the onus is on us to share. We need to, we need to put out into the world what we've learned. So I cold uh, called a bunch of districts. I, you know, circled up the, the colleagues of, of mine that were like-minded and we started with a meeting where really we were establishing that, We're going to regularly convene to be able to support one another in uh, resource sharing, establishing best practices, um, lots of PD, lots of thought partnering and uh, networking to establish best practices around school mental health implementation and to move the dial on this implementation across the state. Um, Everything was, you know, everything offered was open source and we wanted to make sure that we were inclusive, all were welcome, and the agenda was, let's do stuff around school mental health. It was not a prescriptive, if you join, you must, X, Y, Z. Uh, it was, if you join, please engage with us in creating a, an atmosphere and a, and a group of people who care about school mental health implementation, and let's move the dial on that. Um, so, fast forward beyond that initial point, and we're up to 170 districts across the state, lots and lots of districts that are engaging with us in a variety of professional development opportunities. Um, what do we have cooking right now? Um, school Mental Health Leadership Institute is a professional learning series and uh, opportunity for um, fellowship. Um, a couple fellowship cohorts. So some content delivered around school mental health leadership to really ready up the next uh, uh, cohort of clinical leaders across the state. And then in addition to that, have uh, sessions to be able to connect with colleagues and, you know, extend that learning into practical application. Uh, we are also offering a bunch of PLCs uh, through uh, an opportunity with uh, the Rennie Center and uh, the Bright Program at the Brookland Center, a partnership called Thriving Minds. Uh, These PLCs are designed to have content and application sessions combined. Uh, The topics range from uh, universal screening, measurement based care practices, establishing needs assessment and resource mapping practices, teaming, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in schools. So lots of different topics that are offered to uh, to groups of districts. And um, and lastly, uh, w- w- one other thing that we're working on that we're really excited about is uh, delivering a series on trauma-informed practice in schools. Mm-hmm. That is, um, there's a coaching cohort and a learning cohort, and <coughs> to provide direct coaching to districts to establish trauma-informed practices across all tiers of support. So a bit of what's going on. Yeah, super
0: impressive John. Yeah. Yeah. Even in prepping for this we we were right. uh, we, we we thought it was 150 districts you let us know it was yeah. 170 districts so it sounds like in the last like 4 days you've had 20 additional districts uh, come yeah. on board but but you know the 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 fact that you're getting that kind of growth clearly shows that you're uh, just giving a lot of value to yeah. districts that are being part of this.
1: It's very inspiring and important work. Thank you so much. So we know that there's a lot of issues in the, you know, with the state of mental health in schools, but um, I know that there's always something going right as well. So can you tell us some of your, your best success stories with this work you've been doing?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm real proud of the work that districts are engaged in across Massachusetts. We, yeah, I know that the practice of universal screening is something that lots and lots of districts are trying to get off the ground. And I've definitely seen some movement there with districts, you know, piloting practice, expanding it across their district, starting small, but then, you know, eventually scaling up. That's been a, a huge win. I'm seeing that happen uh, more often. I definitely am seeing um, a greater sensitivity to evidence-based practice, and districts wanting to ready up their internal staff to provide therapeutic care. There's been some great work around teaming, districts thoughtfully putting teams in place to create strategic plans that really are sensitive to the entire system, not just like a little bit of work here, a little bit of work there, it's like thoughtful district-wide planning around how to establish comprehensive school mental health. Um, I'm also, you know, I've got to throw out there that there's been uh, certainly a win in Massachusetts and I know in other states around, you know, pointing money at this in a way that makes a lot of sense. Uh, There has been um, there have been a couple grant opportunities offered through the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education that have really provided the seed money for districts to establish comprehensive school mental health systems. And, um and that that is you know that's promising it, it, it feels good to know that it's being taken seriously and that a, 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 a good pool of money is being pointed directly at this cause so you know we're we're moving there there are good, there are bright spots for sure this is you know if I'm going to take a big step back and just call out the the bright spot that's kind of obvious is that Everyone is attuned to this need at this mm-hmm. point. There, there are very Absolutely. few mm-hmm. who are going to say, yeah, "I don't know if that's a, a thing that you should focus <laughs> on," um, and that feels pretty good to not have to argue the point all the time.
0: And that seems like a change, even in the last five years, John. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's been you know, there's not you know, it's it's very difficult. I think post-COVID to to say, uh, "Hey, our school district doesn't have a role when it comes to delivering uh, kind of you know high-quality mental health care." I, I, I think that's uh, definitely kind of a a, a mindset that's a thing of the past for sure, and I think that's a, you know maybe one of the silver linings, one of the bright spots coming out of the coming out of the pandemic. Um, so you know, couple couple wrap up questions. If you had um, you know, if you had you know, you know all encompassing magical powers at a federal policy, state policy level, and you could implement you know one single change when it came to uh, uh, kind of advancing the cause of school based mental health, what would that be?
2: That's 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 heavy. Um, <laughs> heavy, heavy. We're going <laughs> we're going deep here. We're going deep uh, on the be podcast, John. I've got my one wish left, and this is the, the moment I have to spend it. All right, so um, I guess I guess I would, um, you know, I'm I'm actually very much a proponent of accountability, um, and I, that, that might sound strange, um, but I I would love for it to be a requirement for districts to establish a comprehensive school mental health system that is inclusive of well-trained school-based mental health staff uh, that is engaging in screening regularly to foster proactive and preventative identification of kids, Mm. that is providing tier one supports to all kids, and that has appropriate uh, clinical leadership to be able to guide that ship. Um, I think, you know, I don't know that that's an odd ask. Quite frankly, I, I think it's—I think it just kind of makes sense. And when we talk about every single outcome being mediated by mental health, I think it's a strong investment too.
0: Sure. Hmm. I mean, it's the classic conundrum. I think in U.S. education, right, is kind of like you know the the strength of the top-down mandate versus the desire for local control and districts to kind of have their own approaches for for innovation. I think finding that balancing act is uh, both in this area and I think across education always always challenging.
2: Hundred percent. 100%.
1: Well, John. In closing, we love to ask our guests. You know, what is your best secrets for maintaining your own mental health? What do you do on a re- regular, consistent basis to stay healthy and in, in, uh, in that mental health space?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel lucky that I I have a a lot of stuff that I'm interested in and that keep me going, keep me feeling feeling well. I get outside a lot. Mm. I love hiking. I I mean if it's a walk around the block I'm happy. But you know, I, I do like getting out in the woods, um trying to find some quiet time in, in nature is definitely a, a piece for me. And happy to tackle a mountain here and there too. That would be fine with me. Um, so yeah, just, you know, staying active, staying out in the woods. And and yes, while I'm on the trail, the clash is playing. I was going to say, right, that, that was my next question, John. So I was kind of like, is, is,
0: is you listening to the it. clash something that takes place when you're in the woods or, or are you focusing on the quiet and the solitude in the woods and then you, you go home and it's it's, nice pl- it's, pl- it's bad, clash bad. time at that point. So yeah, got it, got it. Way so.
1: to bring it full circle. Yeah,
0: okay. yeah. All right, well, John, uh, really appreciate the time. Uh, always enjoy talking with you. Uh, you and I have had a, a chance to sit on a on a panel together, and uh, you know, from that very first time that that we met and interacted, I just really appreciated kind of your your intelligence, your humility, and uh, all of the great things that you're doing both in Methuen and across uh, you know the the state of Massachusetts. So uh, appreciate you, and yes. uh, thanks for uh, being our guest on the podcast. Thank today.
1: you, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Absolutely a pleasure to be on here and uh, to, to be able to chat with you both. I, I truly appreciate the opportunity and, and your focus on this topic. It's um, it's very much appreciated. So I wish you the best.
0: Thanks, you John. Care. Likewise. Have a great day. Ah. All right, Lane, we're going to, we're going to wrap up with, uh, you know, our standard ending here of what mm-hmm. has inspired us this week. Do you want to uh, kick, kick us yes. off here?
1: Well, this is, uh, also ties into, uh, my original piece about de-escalation strategies. I told you I'm often referred to as the reset lady in school districts. So this past week I was in an elementary school talking to a fifth grade class and the teacher asked me if I would um, spend some time explaining what a reset is to kids. And for our audience, a reset is just basically, Uh, emotional regulation practice. It's realizing that I'm in my stress response, fight, flight, freeze or fawn and uh, how to get back to my, you know, the best version of myself, that kind of homeostasis. (laughs) And so as I'm explaining this to students, the way I like to explain it is that it's sort of like um, your Apple device or any device for that matter sometimes our apps don't work properly and we don't throw away our $1,000 device. We usually power it down or, or you know, click out of the app or power it down. And when it comes back, everything is working properly. Right? So as I explained this to these students, not only did they understand the assignment, but they started shouting out different ways, or I shouldn't say shouting, they were very polite and, and respectful. They were um, sharing different ways that they could reset, like coming up with it on the spot. And I was so inspired by this. They were saying, I could take a walk. I can talk to my parents. I can listen to music. Music, I can do some coloring. I can build. I, there are a lot of kids that like Legos and found that building um, would help ground them. So I just was really inspired that kids really do understand reset, appreciate the value. And then, oh, here's a little extra. Um, I've seen this happen a lot, but it did happen in this particular school where the uh, faculty was saying that, you know, now there's a need to give this presentation to parents because the kids are going home and resetting their parents or their siblings. (laughs) And so the parents are going, this is working so well. What is this thing? So they need more information about how they can also be practicing resets at home. Um, So I I just was very inspired by that. Great tool that
0: can work kind of in in school and in the home. So, oh, uh, anywhere on the soccer
1: field and you know, other places where there could be conflict um, or levels of high stress. Absolutely, that's a great
0: one. So, yeah, so mine is a little bit, uh, this will be a little bit wonky, uh, but but one of the things that we're doing here at Effective School Solutions, we've been doing a lot of uh, kind of data investigations, looking at some of the data that we have about. Um, You know, students who are participating in therapeutic services. And one of the interesting projects that we're looking at right now is trying to find a linkage between uh, things that might come up in a therapeutic session and determining whether or not those things might be predictive of students having a higher risk or a higher probability Mm. of uh, like an adverse incident in the future, a significant behavioral outburst, an Mm. incident of suicidal ideation. So, you know, uh, you know, of course, when it comes to great mental health care and kind of risk management and risk assessment, there is there the most important thing, I think, is a great well-trained clinician who's able to yeah. you know interact with students and identify, uh, you know, potential situations where escalation is needed. Mm-hmm. But if we can help arm those clinicians with data that helps them to do their jobs more effectively, and might help them to take a closer look at a student case that that uh, you know the data would indicate might need a little bit of a closer look. That's really helpful as well. So this is not something we're kind of uh, you know using actively in our, our practice uh, right now, but mm-hmm. but I, I do think that as we go through uh, with the whole you know uh, area of of kind of mental health and and behavioral health, uh, we should be thinking. Uh, about how we can use in responsible ways technology more effectively and mm-hmm. even things like artificial intelligence and machine learning to help us improve the quality of care that we we provide the students. And there's also a whole ethical framework that we need to keep in mind with respect to, you know, how how kind of uh, we're using that information and using it kind of responsibly, but not just for effective school solutions, but across the entire you know, field. I think this is going to be uh, something that will be really, really important and a big topic of conversation here in the next five or 10 years. I love that. Yeah,
1: I do. That's a great trend.
0: Okay, well, on on that note, uh, I think we should uh, wrap it up. Uh, the temperature, based on the the uh, maybe on the the hot air from the last uh, forty five minutes, is now from seventy one degrees up to seventy two degrees. Increase. So
1: uh, I'm very comfortable, um, though. Are you?
0: I, I am as well. Yeah, yeah. But I've got I've got a nice so maybe a nice, the
1: number is seventy two sweater on,
0: and uh, yeah, but. Uh, uh, so, uh, we appreciate everybody joining in today. Thank you Thank as you. always for being a listener on the might be cop podcast. And we hope to uh, have you join us on our uh, next episode. Keep an eye out for your, uh, your, your podcast listening forum of, of choice. And we're going to have new episodes dropping every couple of weeks or so. So we will, uh, talk to all of you soon and we hope you, uh, are all well and doing great things to, uh, Uh, serve and support students, families, and uh, educators when it comes to their mental health. Take care.
1: Bye. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including, but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense, or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local healthcare provider. Thank you.